nonetheless, Jesus is determined to teach them. Because he knows that although they don't get it here, they will get it. In fact, it's only through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that anyone ever truly gets it. And so what we see here in this passage is the process of reorienting the disciples' lives. He rearranges them. He's already told them about his very own oath of allegiance, but it sounded a little too difficult for them. Nonetheless, it doesn't deter Jesus from teaching them. He teaches them over and over and over again that what they think they should be pursuing is actually not a worthwhile pursuit. While they think they should be trying to be the greatest they can possibly be, Jesus says, no, 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 you've got to get low if you want to be great. The reality is that Jesus reorients these disciples' lives and he reorients your life as well. A radical reorientation is normal Christianity. That's what it is to follow Jesus. That's what it is to know Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian. And we don't need any qualifiers in front of the term Christian. We shouldn't ever need to say real Christian or true Christian or born again Christian or genuine Christian or serious Christian. A Christian is a Christian, period. And so as we look at Jesus reorienting the disciples' lives here, I want us to think then about the three changes that you also must experience in order to follow Jesus. Jesus is not an addition to life. Jesus is life. And when we come to Jesus, our lives completely change. And so we see three of those such changes here in this particular passage. The first of them comes to us in verses 30 to 32 as Jesus once again explains the the point of his ministry, what he came to do. And once again, the disciples don't understand, but this time, probably because of Peter's rebuke and the, the bitter taste of that still in their mouth, they don't say anything. They're afraid to ask because they don't understand, and yet they'd rather live in their ignorance than take the risk of embarrassment. Isn't that a lesson for so many? So we see first then the change, the first change that you must experience in order to follow Jesus is that Jesus changes your understanding of him. Jesus changes your understanding of him. This is exactly what he does in verses 30 to 32. Again, Jesus is traveling with his disciples and like usually happens with men some of the best conversations happen not when you're looking at each other face to face but when you're walking along a path and you don't have to make eye contact with one another so the best most deep conversations happen with men when they're shoulder to shoulder instead of face to face this is what happens with Jesus and the disciples although they don't quite understand what's going on 
Verse 30 picks it back up from where we were after the, the healing, the casting out of the demon that held, the, held the, young, the, the young boy captive. The father's desperation sent him to Jesus. The disciples failed to be able to cast it out. Later on, they go into a house. They ask Jesus why they couldn't cast it out. And he tells them point blank, it's because you didn't pray. Which is to say, because you trusted in yourself and you didn't ask God for help. And so they're fresh off the sting of that lesson, and now they're traveling back through Galilee, headed to Capernaum, to the house, which was most likely Peter's house, though Mark doesn't specify that for us. And they're talking as they go. Jesus wants it to stay hidden. He wants it to stay quiet, because verse 31 says he was teaching his disciples. His focus is specifically on his disciples. And what he has to teach them centers on his work of atonement. He's taught them this lesson in verse 31 already. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He's taught them this lesson already at the end of chapter 8. He's going to teach them one more time in chapter 10. Every time, of all three times in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus teaches the disciples this lesson, it's always immediately followed by an extreme failure of the disciples. You remember what happened back in chapter 8 when Jesus started talking like this? Peter confesses, you're the Christ. Jesus says, yes, that's right. The Son of Man must die. And Peter rebukes Jesus. Generally not a good idea to rebuke the God who made you. And then, in turn, Jesus rebukes Peter. And for all intents and purposes, puts Peter in his place. In a perfectly sinless way, he puts Peter in his place. Because the disciples need to know that what they are looking for is not who he really is. You see, Jesus here, just as he has done already, Jesus completely reinterprets their understanding of the Old Testament. You'll notice what phrase he uses again to refer to himself, the Son of Man, right? We've talked about what the Son of Man means already, but you'll remember from Daniel chapter 7, and you can look it up later, Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man figure is portrayed, and he's, he's pictured as one who is coming on the clouds of heaven one who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples nations and languages should serve him but Daniel goes on to describe the son of man he says that his dominion is an everlasting dominion his reign his rule his power is everlasting now last time I checked everlasting means forever right and then not only is his Ever, is his dominion everlasting, but his kingdom, Daniel tells us, will not be destroyed. So you've got an everlasting dominion, and you've got a kingdom that won't be destroyed. Fix those realities in your mind, because that's what the disciples are thinking. And then they hear about the Son of Man, the king of that kingdom, dying. How can dominion be everlasting if the king dies? How can a kingdom be forever if the king dies? 
You see, what they were looking for was a savior of political power. Deliver us from our oppressors. What they did not understand that they needed was not just the son of man of Daniel 7, but the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. They did not understand that in Jesus, both of those realities met together perfectly. That in order for his kingdom to be everlasting, and in order for his dominion to be forever, he must walk the path of the suffering servant. Or as the book of Revelation puts it, he must purchase a people for his father. Because the reality is that you cannot make it into that kingdom. You cannot live underneath the pleasure of that dominion and remain in your sin. But you see, they didn't really care a whole lot about their sin. Oh, they knew they were sinners. They would go to the temple and they would fix it every once in a while. They knew they were sinners. Blood flowed constantly from the sacrifices. They could smell it. They could see it. They experienced it as they offered sacrifices themselves. But what do sinners tend to do when they go through the motions over and over again? They forget. They downplay the importance of it. Well, yes, I know I'm a sinner, but it's just a mistake. I mean, God's gracious, right? See, when those words start coming out of our mouths, it's in those times that you know you are in danger because you're profaning the sacrifice of the Savior himself. When you belittle your sin, you belittle the Savior. God forbid that we ever belittle the Savior. But that's exactly what they did. Give us power, son of man. Give us a kingdom, son of man. Take away our problems, son of man. Feed us forever, son of man. End our struggle, end our strife, son of man. But Jesus says, what you need most is a solution for the problem that resides inside of you, not outside of you. What you need most is a savior from your sins. And not just a savior from your sins, but a savior from the consequences that your sin brings. You ever stop to think about this language of Jesus as a savior? Being, being a savior implies, or, or needing salvation implies a problem, right? You need to be saved from something or someone. How often do you stop and think about the reality that what we need to be saved from and in Jesus, what we have been saved from is the righteous anger of God against you for what you've done in rebellion against him. See, that's the full understanding of God's love. God doesn't sit in heaven crying over us not coming to him. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem God desires that all would come to him and that none would perish. God is not a, a cruel robot that loves to punish people and laughs about it. 
But he's also not a scared old man who's just desperately begging you to come to him. He's perfect in his holiness and he's perfect in his righteousness, which means that he has to call guilty, guilty. The disciples didn't understand that. Not yet. Oh, they would. They would. But they didn't get it yet. So it's easy for us to read this on this side of the finished work of Jesus Christ. To hear about Jesus' description of what he would have to do and then read verse 32 and read about the disciples' response. They did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. It's easy for us to read that and go, seriously, guys, come on, get it together. But it was because their understanding, the the teaching that they had been taught ever since they were kids was that the Messiah was going to come and be this political deliverer, this great, powerful rescuer. And Jesus completely reorients their life to understand that he will be a political deliverer one day. But what they need most is to deal with their conflict between them and God. And that was far more important than their conflict between them and Rome. You see, this is what you have to understand, first of all, in order to follow Jesus. This is what the Pharisees, the Jews who persecuted Jesus constantly did not understand. In John 5, 39 to 40, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, the the Jews in Jesus' day knew their Bible They sought the scriptures out tirelessly. Why? Because they thought that in searching the scriptures was their life. In other words, to to put it even more simply, they thought that their Bible knowledge saved them. But that's nothing more than self-righteousness. God will have no self-righteousness in heaven. He will not share his glory with anyone else. And so that's why Jesus was so strong in his indictment against the Pharisees. That's why we have to be strong in our indictment against self-righteousness. To coddle someone in their self-righteousness is to make smooth their path to hell. So just like the disciples had a wrong understanding of their Bibles about the identity of Jesus, the Pharisees had a wrong understanding of their Bibles about the identity of Jesus. And here's the reality. I am certain that there's at least someone here today, right here, right now, that has a wrong understanding about their Bibles, uh, from their Bibles about the identity of Jesus. Oh, I'm sure there are plenty of people who have a right understanding. but I'm sure there's also at least someone who has a wrong understanding. Who sees Jesus more like a therapeutic remedy than a savior for sins. And it's so easy to do that, isn't it? 
We live in such a, a therapeutic-driven culture where everything that is wrong has to find a solution to make you feel better. It's all driven by how you feel, right? Nothing's wrong with feelings. Feelings are indicators on the dashboard, but they're not the engine under the hood. And so it's so easy, especially when we parent our children. But the problem is children grow up to learn that bad theology. It's so easy to teach people that Jesus is a remedy for your problems. That when you're scared, talk to Jesus and he'll help you. That if you're in need, talk to Jesus and he'll help you. And do you know what's so dangerous about that? Is because it's true if you're in Jesus by faith. But the problem is when we teach children that Jesus is a helper that's always there and we don't instill in them he's a savior for their sins, that they're born rebels against God. And what they need most is a savior for their sins. When we don't instill that, they grow up. And then this, this theology of a therapeutic Jesus or a, a powerful deliverer Jesus takes over. And we learn to think of Jesus as a remedy for our problems and a solution for what ails us rather than looking in the mirror and saying, the problem starts right here. Why is the world a mess? Because it's under the effects of sin. And so is every single person walking in the world under the effects of sin and identified as being in Adam, a sinner. And unless that changes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you'll remain that way. And so you can try to slap some Jesus on that if you want, but the reality is, when you stand before him in glory, he's going to say to you, I never knew you. It's so easy to misunderstand Jesus and to misunderstand the gospel of Jesus because it's so good, right? It's so good. There's so much goodness that comes from Jesus. But if you miss the starting line of repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus Christ, if you try to skip over that and only receive the goodness of Jesus, then the reality is that you completely misunderstand the gospel. You completely get Jesus wrong. And the reality is that you will lose your soul. This is what the disciples needed to understand. They needed Jesus to change their understanding of him. And so let me just ask you, how do you understand Jesus? Do you see him first and foremost as the one who has taken upon himself the anger and the just punishment of God for you? Or do you see him as the one who loves to help? Who likes to get you out of a jam when you're in it? Who's patient and gracious and just forgives you and lets you live however you want to live? I love what Danny Aiken says. He says, we must not forget God purposefully killed his son 
in order that he might not kill us. So is that your understanding of Jesus, friend? Because that's the real Jesus. That's the only Jesus that could ever save your soul. And he saves your soul because he loves the sinner. And he loves the humility that comes with falling down before him and saying, Jesus, I'm entirely sinful, completely needy. I receive the gift of your salvation. He loves it. And so Jesus completely changes their understanding of him. And the reality is that's what he does with every single disciple. That's what it is fundamentally to be a Christian. But there's two other changes that Jesus affects in our lives. Two other changes that you must experience in order to follow Jesus in this passage. We see the second one in verses 33 to 37, and it is this. Jesus changes your definition of greatness. Jesus changes your definition of greatness. He changes your understanding of him. He changes your definition of greatness. The story continues, and in verses 33 to 34, Jesus asks a question that embarrasses the the disciples so terribly that they choose not to answer it at all. Verse 33 says, and they came to Capernaum. You remember from the beginning of the gospel of Mark, this was home base for Jesus. And it says, and when he was in the house, most likely Peter's house, if he calls it the house, it's most likely Peter's, a house where he's done plenty of ministry before. He enters the house and Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Perhaps Jesus had divine prerogative and he knew exactly what they were discussing, or perhaps they were just so foolish, as is so often the case with proud people, that they talked just loud enough for Jesus to hear what they were saying as he walked in front of them leading the pack. I think Jesus knows full well what they were discussing. But isn't it so much more effective to ask someone a question than to make a statement? Jesus is the wise man who draws the heart out rather than just tell them what was wrong with what they were doing. What were you discussing on the way? But verse 34 says, but they kept silent. But they kept silent. And it tells us why they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. (laughs) I mean, come on, right? This strikes us as particularly sinful, and yet in their culture, it would have been pretty normal, although entirely sinful. Sinful, but culturally normal. Think of the Pharisees who loved the high places. They loved the seat of honor. And it was totally normal to think, well, the Pharisees are more important than everybody else, so they get to go in front of people. They get to wear fancier clothes than everyone else. They get to sit in the places of honor, and that's just how it works. It's sort of like the caste system in India. You're born into a certain role, you play a certain role. And so they're letting their culture influence them, but notice that based on their silence, even though they've got this cultural understanding of what their life should look like, Jesus' question penetrates the culture, and they know it's wrong. Kind of like when you... You catch your kid with 
her hand in the cookie jar. You say, ah, what are you doing? And it's just frozen. If I don't move, they won't see me. I mean, the disciples are thinking in their, in their arrogant pride, because pride makes you stupid, they're thinking, if we don't say anything, then it, it's okay. it'll all blow over. But notice what Jesus does. He takes this opportunity to make it a teaching lesson. Verse 35 says, and he sat down. That was the position that rabbis took when they were about to teach a lesson. So Jesus sits down. And he calls the 12. He sits down and says, come here, boys. Listen up. I've got something to teach you. And we know the lesson stuck. Number one, because we can see the after effects in the lives of the apostles in the book of Acts. But number two, because you know how it works. The most painful lessons are the best learned lessons. The times when you embarrassed yourself the most in your life are the times, are the lessons that you remember the most. Man, I'm never going to do that again. I think that's exactly what was going on here. Jesus was giving them a, man, I'm never going to do that again moment. So he sits down and he calls them to gather around and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He gives them a principle to apply to their lives. They're arguing about who's the greatest and Jesus makes it clear that the greatest is the one who's last. The greatest is the servant. They're seeing things and their definition of greatness through the eyes of the world and through the eyes of man. But Jesus says, if you want to be great in God's eyes, You've got to be last in line. You've got to be the one who waits on tables, which is what the word servant means. Diakonos, where we get our word deacon. And then he gives them an illustration to understand that it's, it's not so much about the menial tasks that the Christian is to do to follow Jesus, but in fact, the principle of service, the principle of being last in order to be greatest involves not what you do so much as who you do it for. So he grabs a child. Perhaps this was Peter's child. They're in the house, right? They're gathered around. There's a child in the house. And verse 36 says, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them because when you want to make a lesson, you put it right in the middle put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms he said to them whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me this is a little bit difficult for us to understand because we have rightly and sometimes it goes wrong but we have a high view of children children come around and we think to ourselves man they're so cute I love watching kids run and play and enjoy life. But that's not how the culture here thought. First of all, they had a high infant and child mortality rate. So as sad as it is, they couldn't really afford to give their hearts to children very much because so often their children died. And if they gave too much of themselves to their children, their hearts would be broken forever. And so there's that, but then there's the reality that everything, they were, everything that they were taught 
was that children don't really have anything to offer in the Jewish culture until they're 12 years old, when they become an adult. And now we can teach them the Torah. But before that, it's kind of like the, I obviously wasn't around in the 1950s, but I've heard stories. You know the motto, children are to be seen and not heard? It's a little bit like that. Children are to be seen and not heard. Children were looked at as people who couldn't contribute anything to you and who were pretty much a waste of time. Now, the Jews, of course, had a little bit better view of children, but it wasn't all that much better. So Jesus grabs a child as one who symbolizes the lowly and the humble. So the child is the illustration, not so much the object itself. It's not just that Jesus is saying, this is how you have to treat children. Jesus is saying, this is how you have to treat the people that everyone else deems insignificant. Whoever receives one such in my name receives me. Notice what they do, receive, and why they do it in my name. It's not so much about what you do as why you do it. We know the reality of service, right? It's easy to be involved in serving. A whole bunch of people like to be busy serving. But you know the same temptation that I do. That if you're not careful, you can very easily let your heart get to a place where you like to be seen as the one who serves. You like to hear the praise of other people when they say, oh man, that, that guy, he's just such a servant. He's always around anytime you need him. That lady would do anything for you. She's just so sweet. Now, it's not wrong to encourage, right? But if that goes to our heads, we start to think, yeah, I, I, I am the one who does everything. You're right. So the motive can easily become to be seen by other people, but the motive that Jesus says is in his name. Do it as a representative of him. Do it as you walk in his footsteps. Serve the way that he serves. Not in order to be recognized, but in order to love your neighbor. Which is exactly why it's not so much about doing menial tasks, doing what's beneath you, as it is just simply loving your neighbor. As Romans 13 says, to owe a debt of love to everyone. And so he, he rearranges and reorients their understanding of greatness. Paul picks this very same thing up. We read it earlier in Philippians chapter 2. Often Philippians chapter 2 is used so that we can understand the humility of Jesus Christ and the taking on of flesh. But that actually wasn't Paul's point. Paul's point in Philippians 2 is not so much to teach a theological lesson about the kenosis, about the taking on of flesh of Jesus. Paul's point was to teach the Philippian church about humility and to get their eyes off of themselves and to lift it up onto Jesus. So in Philippians 2, 3, and 5, he says to them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain what Christ Jesus did. 
But the commands come first. Paul's saying, if you believe in the work of Jesus Christ and his humility, then this is how you have to live. And if this is not what you do on a regular basis, put the preference of others before yourselves, then it turns out you don't really believe in the humility of Jesus Christ. If the humility of Jesus Christ does not so affect your heart that it leads you to walk in it, then let's just call it what it is. You don't believe it. Jesus is a powerful deliverer or a therapeutic remedy for you, but he's not a suffering savior. Jesus himself illustrates this, I think, better than any story could. Remember what he did on the night before his death? Before his betrayal, I mean? He took the disciples into the upper room. And there was no servant there because Jesus had asked that the room be left by by itself. And so rather than one of the disciples taking the role of the servant, the most lowly servants, and stooping down to wash everybody else's feet, they take a seat at the table. And then Jesus gets up. And he wraps, his, wraps a towel around himself. And he bends down. And he takes the basin of water and the pitcher of water and he pours it over the dirty feet of the disciples. Feet that had constantly sinned against him. Those rebellious feet. And the perfect Holy One washed them. I mean, that room must have been the most silent you've ever heard in the history of hearing. If a human being does that to another human being, that's one thing. But the God-man did that to human beings. And he left them speechless. And then Jesus says, Peter spoke up eventually, but you know how that goes. He was corrected pretty quickly. And Jesus tells them the point of what he had just pictured for them. If I, being your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I've loved you in this way, then this is how you ought to love one another. Jesus teaches us that that is true greatness. True greatness is not what man calls greatness, but what God calls greatness. So what kind of greatness do you strive for? I doubt very much that there are any of us here, at least at this point in life, who sort of step on other people in order to become great. I doubt that we have that problem. Maybe one or two. But that's not the only form of worldly greatness. The key question for us is, this. Do you strive to be great or do you strive to make the people around you great? That's what Jesus is talking about. So do you pursue greatness in the eyes of others or in the eyes of God? Do you strive for greatness and you should strive for greatness, but do you do it so that other people would go, wow, she's so great or he's so great? Or simply acknowledge your greatness so that you would get that promotion or whatever it is? Or do you understand that everything you do is done before the face of God? 
and that that is reason enough to do everything with greatness. Whether someone notices or not, whether it's the most mundane, menial task or the most important task, do you do it for God or do you do it for others? So Jesus changes our definition of greatness. And then there's a third change that we must experience in order to follow Jesus. It comes to us in verses 38 to 41. Jesus changes your perspective on how to get the job done. Jesus changes your perspective on how to get the job done. Or you might say your perspective on the mission. Verse 38, something that Jesus said must have sparked a thought in John's mind. I don't know if this was John confessing something to Jesus or if John was boasting about something. I kind of tend to think it was a boast, but we'll have to ask him when we see him one day. Verse 38 says, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And there's the problem. Notice who John puts the emphasis on. Not following us. Now, what just happened in the passage right before this? The disciples were unable to cast out a demon. Now, John brings up a time in the life of the disciples, a time that we don't have recorded for us, but a time that they remembered quite well, when they saw someone in the name of Jesus casting out demons and it was working. And so rather than applaud him, commend him, encourage him, the disciples went to him and said, you better knock that off. And so John apparently seems to be proud of it, the, this, this son of thunder. And he reports to Jesus, hey, good news, Jesus. Somebody playing for the other team was trying to work for you and we stopped him. Don't worry about it. No competition with us, Jesus. I mean, at this point, the disciples' ministry, at least as the gospels reveal to us, is marked by total failure. So when John has the audacity to say, we tried to stop him because he was not following us, what he's doing is trying to put himself on the level of Jesus. I could understand perhaps if John would have said, we tried to stop him because he was not following you, but that's not what he says. John says he's not on our team, so he's not allowed to work for you, Jesus. Jesus corrects him. But he seems to do it pretty gently in verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't stop him. Because he's one of us. He's just not in this inner circle. To do a mighty work in the name of Jesus, we know from Matthew chapter 7 that in the last day there will be people who did mighty works in the name of Jesus and Jesus will say, I never knew you. But that does not seem to be what Jesus is talking about here. By the very fact that Jesus says, don't stop him, that indicates to us that he must have been a believer in Jesus 
It's just that he was not on Team John. One commentator here says, in complete disregard of the lesson of the preceding story, John regards his call as a disciple, not as a call to service, but as an entitlement of privilege and exclusion. In other words, John is saying, Jesus, it's only us that are supposed to do these cool things that you've given us the authority to do. And now we see somebody else doing it. We got to stop them. What was John doing? John's allegiance was with his own clique, with his own tribe. John wasn't concerned so much about Jesus as he was concerned about his own group. I dare you to name one church that doesn't have a problem with cliques. You laugh because you know it's true. And yet this is the very thing Jesus condemns. Christianity is never an us versus them when it comes to other believers. Now Jesus is not getting into the details that the apostles will get into later. John says, for instance, to test the spirits, to discern the spirits, to understand, to, to seek to understand if their claim to being for Jesus is, is really authentic. Jesus is not getting into those details. And it's the hypercritical person that always wants to take it there, right? Well, but do they really believe everything that we believe? I mean, after all, if they have a wrong view on the coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord, then I mean, can we trust anything they say? See, tribalism is not Christianity. Now, we certainly do have our different doctrines and churches align different doctrinally, and, and that's, that's perfectly fine. That happens. But we can never take secondary issues or tertiary issues tertiary is the word for third tier we can never take those types of issues and place them on the level of gospel issues if we can't link arms with fellow believers who have a different view of baptism than us then whose team are we really on if we can't link arms with other believers who have a different view of the millennium than us whose team are we really on we may go to different churches, but Christianity is not let's huddle together in our own little church. Us four, no more, close the door. That's the very thing Jesus condemns. And so he changes their perspective on how to get the job done because getting the mission of making disciples done, getting the job done for Jesus involves cooperation with other believers all over the world. But if believers seclude themselves and think to themselves, we can't have anything to do with that church. I mean, I don't even know if they preach the gospel over there. I mean, let's stop and think. I'm, I'm talking to myself here too, so get that. But let's stop and think about how many times we have said, I don't even know if they preach the word over there. And yet, most likely, you've never even attended the church. Well, I've heard stories about what people have said. Okay, that's called gossip and it's a sin. Repent. 
I'm serious. Are there churches that don't preach the gospel, false churches that lead people astray? Absolutely there are. And we need to speak loudly and clearly against them. But there are churches that don't agree on the very same things that we agree on, and yet, guess what? We're going to party in heaven with them one day. Because we all depend on the Lord Jesus Christ to get us there. That's what John didn't understand. Paul got this. In Philippians 1, 15 to 18, he's talking about his own imprisonment and the, the people that hounded him, that gave him a hard time as in his apostolic ministry, preaching the gospel, thinking that since he's locked up, we can maybe make more converts than Paul does. But notice how he responds to that. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, Paul's acknowledging that there were people preaching Christ out of envy and selfish ambition. They weren't doing it sincerely, but they were doing it to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. How do you think he responds to that? You might think he would say, so go and shut them up. But this is what he says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Because that's how a servant feels. They're attacking the reputation of Paul. Paul says, I don't care about my reputation. I'm in Christ. He's my reputation. Say what you want about me. Do what you want to me. I don't care. Preach Christ. That's all I care about. John didn't get it. Jesus says, don't stop him. Anyone who is not, uh, then he says, he gives the principle in verse 40, for the one who's not against us is for us. You might not think he's for us, John, but he's proclaiming the truth. He's casting out demons in my name. And so he's for us, which is not to say that there is a neutral point. That is just as long as you don't hate Jesus, then you're kind of in this neutral point and you're for Jesus. No, there's either hot or cold. There's no neutrality. If you're neutral, that means you're against. He says, verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, uh, gives a cup of water, it should say, the ESV should say, in my name because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus again brings it back to the servant aspect. Giving a cup of cold water is the most basic form of service you can give. A form of service that's so basic, one might be tempted to think, well, just go get your own water. From casting out demons to giving a cup of cold water, the most menial, basic task, Jesus says, if anybody does that for you, notice he was first talking, John was talking about the other guy, now Jesus flips it on them. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward, which is just another way of saying he will absolutely receive a reward. Why would he receive a reward? Because he's serving disciples? Well, yes, but because he's doing it in the name of Jesus and because they belong to Christ. 
Because ultimately he understands or she understands, I serve Jesus Christ. That is my life. And so I serve the people of Jesus Christ. Even if it's as simple as giving someone who needs it a cup of cold water. That's my life. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus because he served me in his death and resurrection. That's the Christian perspective. Do you have that perspective? If you don't, let Jesus reorient your life. Let him change your life. It will be a process, but it's a glorious process. You'll learn to enjoy life in a way that you don't presently enjoy it because life is not meant to be lived for you. It's meant to be lived for God. That's the key to life. I've got some diagnostic questions, but I think we've spent enough time talking, or we haven't, I have, spent enough time talking. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll email you those diagnostic questions, and you can, or you can flash them up on the screen there if you'd like to, and you can write them down later. I'll email them to you. If the United States Oath of Allegiance requires a complete separation with who you once were to who you will be as a United States citizen, then the oath of, the oath of allegiance from Jesus does the very same thing. He already told us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Have you answered the call of Jesus? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you paid for our sins. We thank you that we could have never done this ourselves. We could have never denied ourselves by ourselves. We could have never taken up our cross by ourselves. We could have never followed you by ourselves but it was only as you granted us life in you that we were able to do it. And we understand also, Lord, that this is not a one-time deal, but this is a forever commitment to following you. So we throw ourselves at your mercy and we declare we need your help. We don't affect these changes, you do. But we want to cooperate now that you've given us life. We want to cooperate with the very salvation that you have worked in us. We want to work it out of ourselves in fear and trembling. We want to do it not as an expression of our own self-righteousness. But we want to do it based upon your death and resurrection. Based upon your example of humility. Help us never to look to ourselves, but always to look to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.